Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, September the 30th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, October the 3rd, 2022, at 6 p.m., from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At koop.org, all comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 126th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight as quite frankly we have every Monday night, if your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Antiwar.com is reporting that on Thursday, September the 29th, 2022, the Senate approved a stopgap funding bill needed to avert a government shutdown that included some $16 billion in new aid for Ukraine. The $12.3 billion aid package and the new Presidential Drawdown Authority will bring the total authorized for the United States to spend on the war in Ukraine to $67.5 billion. To put this figure in perspective, Russia's entire annual military budget for 2021 was $65.9 billion. And much of this monies are going to U.S. defense contractors to backfill orders that would not be ready for a year or two, essentially when this conflict will long be over, hopefully, meaning it's lining the pockets of these defense contracting multinational corporations. Tonight, our show features Mike Whitney, and we review the very alarming developments with respect to the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline and the continuing deteriorating conditions for the majority populations of the EU, while the United States sits back and makes sure there are no peace prospects in the near future and pays for it all with U.S. taxpayers' monies and Ukraine lives. Meanwhile, egregious levels of wealth inequality is a status quo, and we continue to lose our middle class. Enjoy. Hey, welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. This is Friday, September the 30th, 2022. This show will be broadcast live on Co-op Airwaves at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time in the capital city of Austin, Texas on October the 3rd, 2022. I wanted to welcome back to the show. We we're very excited to have the renowned geopolitical and social analyst based in Washington State, Mike Whitney, with us returning to Bringing Light in the Darkness. Mike, thank you for making time for us. Thank you for having me, especially now when things are moving so quickly. 
Yeah, this is very perilous times, to say the least. I just wanted to mention, for those of you that are not familiar with Mike, it's because you don't listen to Bringing Light into Darkness, because Mike has been a regular contributor. He initiated his career as an independent journalist in 2002, and he's committed to honest journalism, social justice, world peace. He's a research associate at the Center for Research on Globalization, and he writes frequently articles on the same. So let me try to frame our discussion here, Mike. The U.S. has been precipitously losing its economic advantage in the world, and as a result, its foreign policy, it seems, is increasingly taking on more desperate means to economically attack adversaries or perceived economic adversaries such as Russia and China and lesser nations and other perceived adversaries to its economic dominance. I wanted to use the analogy. It's it's like what I'm familiar with in my studies and in my professional career, but it's much like an addict who's strung out on opiates and must do whatever is necessary to procure his drug supply to avoid the soul-shattering effects of a severe opiate withdrawal. The analogy is that wealth accumulation, this unquestionable pursuit of wealth, is the drug addiction that drives our foreign policy and has directly resulted in the pathological levels of wealth inequality in our country and the world. Our unrivaled economic dominance of the world really was initiated with the end of World War II when the rest of the world was rebuilding from the war. However, that economic dominance and wealth accumulation that came with it was a result of the unipolar economic dominance that the United States has exerted since World War II. And that has dissipated. So now, all of a sudden, free enterprise, a free market economy is no longer advantageous, but disadvantageous to the United States in lieu of the emergence of real economic competitors in the form of China and other nations. And as a result, sanctioning of other nations we perceive as threats has been a common tool of our foreign policy. Therefore, the United States and its West vassal states that are dependent on the United States economic dependency and part of it actually in this international power structure, if you will, seem to be pushing us closer to nuclear war. But the appearance promoted in the propaganda war, it's all being provoked by Russian aggression in Ukraine. I wanted to also mention that Dr. King, we've talked about this a lot, but it's really important because this is the context in order to be mature adults and understand who's bearing the greatest responsibility for this perilous state of the world with nuclear war becoming more of a probability type of thing. But Dr. King said the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, and I might add also the greatest purveyor of false propaganda in the world, is the United States, as evidenced by the number of false accusations and false flags that our foreign policy has promoted over the years many that we have detailed on this show and or questioned in real time. However, the overwhelm of the mainstream media's influence on public thought and the exclusion of a contrary narrative results in the American public continually being duped into false understandings, creating false images as we have suggested as Russia as the aggressor is, The United States dwarfs Russia and the Soviet Union when it comes to the U.S. long history of directly violating the sovereignty of other nations throughout the world since World War II. We outspend 
military spending, according to the most current data available, and this is according to recently released figures from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute in 2021, that results in the United States spending now more on defense than the next nine countries combined. Anyhow, with that being said, this whole push towards this nuclear situation Pepe Escobar, in a piece that was just recently released, speaks to a number of connected issues that we wanted you to speak to, Mike. But perhaps we could start off. I wanted to highlight just a couple of things about this article that Anatoly Antonov wrote in the National Interest on September 28th. He's the ambassador to the United States. Clearly, he has been sharing the ideas of Russia, not of his own. But he comes out very clearly indicating that he wanted to stress that there was no changes in the conditions when our country would use nuclear weapons. We continue to strictly adhere to the 2014 military doctrine and the 2020 basic principles of state policy on nuclear deterrence. He said uh, he wanted to confirm that, as President Putin said on September 21st, Russia is ready to defend its sovereignty, territorial integrity, and our people with all weapon systems we have. What is so aggressive about that statement, he asks? What is so unacceptable about that? Would the United States not do the same if faced with an existential threat? He goes on to say that we are not threatening anyone. He also indicates, Mike, that he would like to add that certain American politicians are under the delusion that they think that our readiness to defend our territory does not apply to Crimea and to these recent four territories that just became part of Russia or is in the process this week of becoming part of Russia. And this is what really concerns me, because clearly Ukraine, with U.S. backing, is going to continue to bomb the Donbass area, Zaporizhia and Kyrgyzstan, the other two, referenda deals. And now that's going to be seen in a much different light than what preceded the referenda motion that resulted in them now being considered parts of Russia. So do you mind starting your comments with the significance of these referenda and what you perceive the increased dangers that are being ratcheted up by these now pending attacks will be considered on the Russian state rather than on the eastern Donbass area? Well, you know, that's a huge and expansive opening, and there are a number of things that I'd like to talk about there, but particularly the fact that you're talking about how dangerous the situation is right now and the use of nuclear weapons, which is by Russia restricted to just an existential threat to their country, that does not apply to the United States. Their standard is much lower and much more ambiguous. And in the, the most recent national security strategy could involve something that is almost as trivial as defending another country from a potential threat of weapons of mass destruction from another country. So the question of whether the United States would use nuclear weapons in a war is kind of unknown at this point, but there is a powerful contingent in Washington that have felt since 2004 on that we should embrace the idea of a winnable nuclear war. And to that end, under Trump, they developed low-yield, usable, what they call usable nuclear weapons. And these weapons have been deployed on the Trident submarines. So they're already out there. And there is a contingent who feels like these low-impact nuclear weapons, which won't blow up a whole country, but maybe just a city, 
should be used in the event of some threat to potential allies or whatever. So we've lowered the bar and we've created a regime of nuclear weapons that a great number of people in Washington feel are usable. And there's a real question as to if this conflict with Russia develops, if they'll actually pursue that theory. So we should be very concerned about that. It does really appear that there is a concerted effort by a desperate nation, namely the United States. I mean, they've been trying to, and, and we'll get into the successful bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline and the breaking or making sure that Europe and particularly Germany does not develop economic relations with or strong economic relations with Russia. But the misinterpretation and the misrepresentation of Russia and Putin's position on nuclear weapons, it seems to me, it seems to be intentional part of this propaganda thing by the U.S. because it's preventable by the United States. The United States knows about the military doctrine of Russia, yet it allows these ambiguous interpretations to be reported through the media that Russia may be a overt nuclear threat to the West. And then the bellicose position of the U.S. leads past those representations to the next step, which is warning Russia they better not. Or we will respond accordingly, suggesting a self-righteous response to an unprovoked Russian aggression. And, and what this ambassador is saying, it's important to stop threatening us. So along those lines, I think your remarks about the ambiguous nature of the U.S. nuclear position and such is pointed towards this issue. But I just wanted to reiterate that this is a very disconcerting development to me, particularly with the recent referendums there. And now will certainly follow will be continued military conflicts in those areas. But now they will be considered an attack on Russia rather than an attack on you know, Russia's foreign allies, if you will, Russian-speaking Ukrainians? Well, quite simply, we don't know all the reasons why Putin has done what he has done. There's been a lot of speculation on that. But in some ways, he has circled the wagons. He's taken these four areas that are inhabited by Russian-speaking people and that are ethnic Russians by race, and he has annexed them into Russia proper. And he has done that by most analysts' conclusions because he thinks that it will show that he is not expanding the operation. But now that those areas are part of Russia proper, that an attack on those areas would be an attack on Russia. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to pose an existential threat to Russia and that he'll necessarily have his finger on the big red switch and send nuclear weapons to the United States. But it does mean that it's going to be a more serious than an infraction on an attack on Russian troops in Ukraine. Keep in mind that Russia has waited eight years while those people of that area, 14,000 of them civilians, were killed in the last eight years from the Ukrainian government that was basically bombarding its own people and killing them because they would not succumb to the coup government that the CIA installed in 2014. So Putin patiently waited for the Minsk agreements to be settled and for the Ukrainian side to maintain its part of the obligation, which they never did. And then finally said, threw his hands up after more than 2 million had fled the country to go in there and protect them. That was the genesis of the invasion, to protect those people in the Donbass. And that's exactly what he's done. And now he's annexing it to send a message to them. If you attack this, there's going to be repercussions beyond what you've seen to this extent. But we don't know what that means. Will he bomb Kiev? I think he'll certainly bomb installations or perhaps government buildings. 
or whatever if more civilians are killed in the Donbass region. So I think he is signaling that there's some sort of escalation taking place. We don't know since the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines, both of them, which is basically destruction of critical infrastructure from Europe to Russia. So we have pushed this war into an area of international terrorism now. So Russia cannot ignore that because they have other pipelines going to Turkey and even the Siberian pipeline that could be under threat. So they have to take that absolutely seriously. So we don't know which way this war is going to go now, but the tinder has been lit and we know that the war is going to escalate in some really ungodly fashion. Well, I'd like to get more into that whole issue of, of the Nordstrom bombings of the pipelines. Before we do, I wanted to back up a, a, again a little bit because I wanted to go back to Anatoly Antilov's piece. This whole provocation is being put on Russia, or at least they're trying to frame that. But in reality, this propaganda war, if you remove the false propaganda and look at the more objective conditions that have occurred, he makes the point very clearly that the United States actions and inactions are the driving force behind this military conflict lasting as long as it has. Dr. King's term silence is betrayal, that if you were silent in the face of a crime, then you're really part of that crime. And he indicates that about the United States, because the United States did what it could to make sure that the Minsk agreements were never implemented. He actually says in his piece, I have to wonder, what did the United States do to ensure the implementation of the Minsk agreements? This, despite United Nations Security Council, so agreed the United States was part of it, that this would be the path forward. But instead, it was sabotaged by the absence of good faith by Ukraine, a major signatory. He goes on and says, why did Washington keep silent for those eight years you're talking about? from 2014 to the invasion of, by Russia. And for those eight years, while these Ukrainians and Russian speaking were killed in the Donbass to the tune of 14,000, why did Washington stay silent? Why did they uh, not insist that their ally, the government that they put into power in Ukraine, why did we not insist that they abide by the treaty they signed? So I do think the Minsk agreement and its failure is overtly the U.S.-driven outcome. Yet this fact, along with our forceful influences to ensure Russia and Ukraine did not reach a peaceful settlement back in March and April of 2022, are important evidentiary indications that supports Russia's position that they were provoked to take and continue military action as all their diplomatic outreach for a peaceful outcome during the conflict since 2014 has been directly sabotaged by the United States-led NATO actors. We know now with overwhelming confidence that in April, Ukraine and Russia were very close to a peace agreement that was exed and wiped out by the intervention of Joe Biden and Boris Johnson. So can you speak to the significance of this political path that was being pursued by everybody, really, except it seems to me U.S. Western influences that were there to sabotage it? Even the president, Petro Poroshenko, at the time admitted that it was 
in bad faith the whole time. They were trying to just build up their own military strength. These are all dictates from, I presume, the U.S. CIA M- M16 influenced foreign policy of this neo-Nazi led Ukraine national security program that was decimating these 14,000 people in the Donbass. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, Poroshenko, who was the Washington puppet that preceded Zelensky, said that we just used Minsk to buy time so we could build up our army so that we could confront the Russian-speaking people in the future. So it was all a fraud from the get-go. And Putin knew that. But all he could hope for is that the Ukrainian people would see the insanity of this thing and rise up against the government and come to some sort of a peace agreement. But I don't think realistically he thought that was going to happen because the CIA and the United States is so heavily invested in Ukraine. But yes, in March and April, there was an agreement made between the Ukrainian high command and Russia's. And that was to the effect that if they met Russia's minimal demands. They just wanted to ensure that a hostile army and their missiles were not lined up on their border and that the people could have some sort of special status in the Russian-speaking area so they wouldn't be persecuted by Kiev. Mm -hmm. Those were the minimal demands. And Russia was willing to go along with that and withdraw all their troops. Okay. But that never happened because like you said, Boris Johnson came over, the prime minister of UK at the time, and following Washington's order, scotched the deal. So that didn't happen. The other thing that I wanted you to comment on was the last time we were on, we were talking about the buildup that you just talked about that Poroshenko was alluding to that, in fact, the deputy foreign minister, Sergei Vershinin, told the UN Security Council that there were some 122,000 Ukrainian military forces were lined up at the front in the Donbass with the possible intention of launching yet a huge offensive, right? And so exactly, they had one third of their army located just miles away from what they call the line of contact which is where the Russian-speaking people live. Uh, Keep in mind, once again, this is a country that is waging war on its own people. That is what Putin was trying to stop. That's what he's trying to prevent, is more killing of their own people. This wasn't a civil war. This was attack on their own people. Along the same lines, it's so important. We talk about it on the show, but sometimes people don't listen to all the shows. And so I just want to reiterate, There was an incredible commitment of repression made by the Ukrainian army, led by the U.S. advisors and all of that. Historically, the Odessa trade union massacre of peaceful protesters to the coup symbolized that back in May of that 2014. But there are execution style type deals. These are not just 14,000 dead in the Donbass before the Russian invasion, but the the neo-Nazi-led repression that resulted in indications of execution-style murders of civilians, as well as Donbass militias. Unmarked graves and all of these traditional horrific types of events. Reminiscent of the infamous death squads in the 1980s in Central America and the beheadings and mutilations by Al-Qaeda-like extremist groups supported by the United States in Syria. Put the fear of God in the Donbass area and accelerated at every move their interest to break away from this government that was a coup government. It, it, it overthrew the very government that they had elected and completely reversed its commitment. Pedro, as you know, 
two weeks before the Russian invasion, Joe Biden said Putin is going to invade. As a matter of fact, there were a number of people, officials in the Western media who were echoing that same thing, saying Putin is going to invade. We know it. We can tell you with absolute factual backing that he's going to invade. Well, how did they know that? Well, they knew that because on February 16th, before the Russian invasion, they started intensifying the bombardment of the civilian areas, okay, in the Donbass. So they were pounding and pounding, and those have been monitored by officials from the OSCE. And so it's all been documented, and that happened almost uh, 10 days before the actual invasion. So the bombardment intensified, intensified. There were more people fleeing the country. There were more people killed. And Russia quickly convened the Duma, the uh, parliament, the Russian parliament, and they voted whether to support an invasion to basically protect those people in the Donbass, their own people, ethnic Russians, after waiting eight years for the same thing. And so that was the beginning of the war. The war did not begin when Russia invaded on February 24th. That was 10 days later after the bombardment. And this, again, you were talking about the propaganda war. Well, in the Western media, they've completely won the propaganda war because people don't even know about the incidents that preceded the war. Right. And they used as the whole starting point, Russia invading, when in fact, it's all of the provocations that led to that went unreported. And that's why Biden knew they were going to invade, because we kept on provoking them. We have a CIA office in Kiev. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they knew. But, you know, the propaganda war on the West has been very successful up to this point. But there's no way to cover or disguise who was involved in the bombing of the pipeline. We don't have material evidence just yet, but you have to ask yourself, would Russia blow up a $10 billion pipeline and its potential for integrating economically Germany and Europe with Russia if it could just turn off the spigot at the source? Of course it wouldn't. There's no reason to do that. Just turn off the source. You don't have to go blow up your pipeline and have people pointing the figure at you. Uh, hey, Mike, we need to take a brief pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We are joined with Mike Whitney, investigative reporter, and we will be back after just a few announcements. So please stay tuned. Don't touch that dial.